How's it going, everyone? We know it's been a minute, but we're glad to be back. Welcome to episode two of the Comrades Classroom Podcast. On it, we talk about the Black Liberation Army, their impacts on their community, their security culture, and how their work and the ways in which they moved for Black Liberation influence our work today. On the actual podcast, the first thing you're going to hear is a documentary shot with Thomas Blood McCreary, a former Black Liberation Army member who gives a full and personal detailed history of his experiences with, with the collective and then following you will hear our discussion about key topics and how we believe it's influential to the way in which we move today that the BLA came out of the Black Panther Party. There are other people who take the position that the concept of the BLA was long before the Black Panther Party. Uh, I think that the BLA has some of its manifestations, not all of them, in Deacons for Defense. They came out of Bogalusa, Louisiana. Uh, some, of the, some, of, some, of, some of it can be found in... Uh, Robert Williams, uh, Monroe, North Carolina, you know, where black people even you know, took up arms to defend themselves. Some go back to Nat Turner, you know, Denmark Vester, the slave rebellions, you know. We like to think that there was a black liberation army from the time that black people stepped foot on the shores of North America. Um, but to answer the question in more contemporary times, I would take the position that the BLA arose out of the Black Panther Party. And that rise came about uh, due to the counterintelligence program. There was uh, ways against the Black Panther Party and other segments of the Black Liberation Movement. Uh, the BLA was um, an organization. I take the position that the BLA came about, the Black Panther Party gave birth to the contemporary Black Liberation Army. This was a very difficult birth meaning that the BLA was born in blood. Uh, it was premature, but, but the conditions of the time and the split within the Black Panther Party made us have to move the way we started moving. But uh, if we had had more time, you know, I think that uh, we could have done a much better job in terms of developing the Black Liberation Army. Well, it was 
two major factors. I mean, it all stemmed from the counterintelligence program. It, uh, once Jagger Hoover started waging war against the party, uh, a lot of things started happening. A lot of Panthers started getting framed upon trumped-up charges, sentenced to long prison sentences. There was a lot of conspiracy cases going on during that time. Uh, Panther 21 case, which involved Sunday Island and uh, a number of other Panthers. Uh, there were killings taking place through the government, you know, Fred Hampton, uh, uh, the intelligence program of us organization, pitting us and the Panthers against each other, alleged to death of Bunchy Carter and John Huggins at UCLA. Uh, even the shootout with Bobby Hutton and whatnot, uh, manifestation can be found within the counterintelligence program. Uh, so those were some of the conditions that uh, forced people to have to go into the ground. Then there was a split within the Black Panther Party, which we now take the position that much of that was orchestrated by the counterintelligence program. It was exploited, and it started pitting Panthers against each other. And, uh, you know, people didn't feel safe, you know. A lot of people, this split uh, caused a number of Panthers and chapters around the country to be expelled. I just want to clarify uh, some things uh, in regards to the split. There are those who take the position that it was the East-West Coast split, but the split was much deeper than the East-West Coast thing. We need to be real clear on that. Uh, New York uh, Panther 21 was on trial. They were expelled from the Black Panther Party. Now that's prior to the New York chapter being expelled. They expelled, the, uh, the Panther 21 was expelled, and then later the chapter was expelled. But not only did, uh, and that's New York being on the East Coast, but uh, also the LA chapter was expelled. It's a West Coast thing. Uh, Geronimo Pratt was expelled from the Black Panther Party. So you had leadership here on the East Coast, of the Black Panther Party on the East Coast, being expelled from the party while the uh, Panther uh, uh, chapter was left intact for a short period of time before they were expelled. Uh, you had people on the East Coast uh, decided to go with Huey. For example, the Baltimore chapter, they went with the West Coast. So it was not, the, the split was much deeper than the East-West Coast thing. It had a lot, a lot to do with uh, the leadership of the party at that time. It had a lot to do with uh, police repression that brought this about. Uh, the split in part was brought about due to the counterintelligence program. And due to the pressures that the counterintelligence program was placing upon the party, there were those in leadership, and some of their thinking was that they wanted to de-radicalize the Black Panther Party. Uh, they uh, took on reformist uh, you know, things that they were doing in terms of uh, organizing the masses of people. Uh, there are those that say that the Black Panther Party uh, existed for 16 years, from 66 to 82 or 83. And then there are those who say that the party existed as a revolutionary organization from 1966 to 1971. And in 71, well, that was when New York chapter was expelled and whatnot. We on the East Coast, not, well, I won't say East Coast, we're here in New York. We uh, had a very short run in the Black Panther Party. The party came to New York in the spring of 1968, 
And, and, and by the summer of 71, it was over for us. You know, we had a three-year run in the Black Panther Party, but it was a very intense three years, very, very intense. I mean, we crowded, I would say, 30 years into those three years. And those three years, due to uh, government repression, left an indelible mark among members of the Black Panther Party. You know, uh, a lot of people uh, were still uh, who were in their 60s, late 50s, who are still affected from that period of time. It had a profound effect upon a lot of people, you know. A lot of people were still damaged from that period of time. Well, you have people with uh, psychosis, you have people who have mental disorders, you have people who are uh, took to drinking and drugs, alcohol, post-traumatic stress disorder stemming from that period of time and whatnot, nervous breakdown, a whole assortment of ailments that came out of that period of time because, you know, you had, what you had, you had uh, young people. The average panther was between the ages of 17, 22. That was the average age, age of a man, 23 maybe. But when you got to be 25, 30, you considered old. Eldridge, we referred to Eldridge's Papa Rage. You know, Eldridge was in his 30s, you know, so that was considered old. So you had a lot of youth that came into the party and um, they gave it their all. It was, it was very committed and very, very committed young people who came into the party. Uh, we, we, we lived in a time in the 1960s when um, it was a very tumultuous decade, you know. It was an exciting time, you know, and we were in a position to bring about some major, major changes in this country, you know. It was at a point in time when we really, really could have came very close to changing this government permanently, you know, and I've never, in my study of history, I haven't known any other time when we came that close to bringing about a revolution in the United States, you know, which would have affected our lives, we would have been in a much better place today. I would think that in the beginning, that uh, Bobby and, and Huey, having an understanding of Marxism, Leninism, and Maoist thought, they, and the overall black movement at the time, a lot of elements of the black movement knew that we would be in for a protracted struggle. And that uh, we knew that we would have to have a military apparatus to even defend any type of organization for security and other aspects that an organization of that type would need. Uh, in the early days of the Black Panther Party, <coughs> it was the Black Panther Party for self-defense. So arms was, um, a very key fact in the development of the Black Panther Party. In terms of its military wing, um, Bunchy Carter, Deputy Minister of Defense for the Southern California chapter of the Black Panther Party, LA, he came into the Black Panther Party uh, after prison, after having met Eldridge and uh, Folsom, I think they were in Folsom. Uh, Bunchy uh, was a brother off the street in political terms, we, we refer to as the lumping element. Uh, Bunchy was the leader of a very strong and large gang in L.A. called the Slauson Street. Uh, Bunchy virtually coming into the Black Panther Party brought a whole military wing into the Black Panther Party. Uh, the L.A. chapter, uh, they recognized from the very own start that uh, it would be a need 
for uh, uh, an element of people uh, uh, underground uh, element to protect the party. Uh, they created a thing called the Wolverine, the Wolves, and uh, they functioned. A lot of those brothers never became known as Panther members. A lot of them did recruitment and other things for the Black Panther Party. But you had a lot of people coming to the Black Panther Party that was Vietnam vets. Uh, we had Geronimo Pratt. Uh, they had military expertises, and they and, and they and they put that to work for the Black Panther Party. I mean, it saved a lot of lives, and it prevented more um, uh, provo uh, provocations and shootouts than probably would have taken place. The party, being an organization that had an open door policy, which allowed for all kinds of people to join the party. You know, it was a party where anybody could join the Black Panther Party. And even though it had a uh, security apparatus and tried to screen out people, uh, that open door policy allowed for a lot of informants and agent provocateurs to come into the party and create havoc and disruption. You know, uh, I would say that uh, there were Panthers, especially in the LA chapter, who never became known to the public as Panther members who did things for the party a military fashion for the party and, and protected the party. And, and, and I would suppose that, that existed in other chapters around the country. There was always security apparatus, but the, for, the, or the formation of the Black Liberation Army uh, really took off when the counterintelligence program from, from say from 68 to 69 on, when the heat of all that was coming down and Panthers were being murdered around the country, that's when the, uh, the BLA uh, was having its formative years. You know, in contemporary times, we talked earlier about the BLA having a concept going back years and years and years before that. And, 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 and the BLA, you know, why it, 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 it got its birth from the Black Panther Party, uh, uh, many people came in, not, well, some people, a lot of people who were never Panthers became drafted by the Black Liberation Army. Uh, the BLA, uh, one of the things that I was proud of the BLA was is that it was never, ever infiltrated. That's not to say that people didn't get captured and give up information. But it was never infiltrated because you didn't join the BLA or pick the BLA, the BLA picked you. You know, uh, people was, many people was chosen and called and, and people had a right to, to heed that call or not. But it wasn't all of so where you could go and join the BLA. You know, those people were, were hand-picked and uh, cadres and cells picked their people. And, and uh, were able to function that way, you know, uh, autonomously uh, uh, from other cells. All cells wasn't autonomous, but there were a lot of cells who were autonomous from each other. And that kept down informants and, I mean, people informing on certain things within BLA because you could only deal with your cell at your particular time. Then the BLA had a policy of, uh, the cells that I function with, we had a policy of that 24-hour period. Algerian, but we took that concept from them. Give us 24 hours, and then we can move. And in most cases, it was less, much less than 24 hours, because we knew that once people was captured, what they were going to be up against, you know. 
So, I mean, and, and our whereabouts with our comrades was known all the time. We knew where people was at, and if, and if you weren't, could not be accounted for, uh, that was an alert for us, you know, that something was wrong. And so, you know, we pretty much functioned, you know, uh, safely that way. One of the goals were to, uh, to try and alleviate some of the oppression, the naked violence that was taking place against the above ground movement, black liberation movement as a whole around this country. There were a lot of killings within the black community, especially here in New York City. Cops were throwing young kids off rooftops. And out of all these police murders, they were always justifiable homicide. Uh, we could not no longer stand by and have that continue to exist, you know. Our position that uh, since the black community was very defenseless at that time, that we would take some of that pressure off the black community and we would absorb some of that. And at the very same time, you know, uh, let them know that uh, there was going to be some forces that they would have to deal with if they continued to deal with the, the black community in the manner in which they were doing, and the black liberation movement. Uh, the BLA, uh, uh, not just the black community uh, as we know it, but also our prisoners and whatnot. Uh, BLA took a very strong position around those brothers being murdered at Attica. And, I, and if, I'm, if my memory served me correctly, there was some actions taken in behalf of those Attica brothers. Uh, the same thing with George Jackson when he was murdered uh, in San Quentin. We wanted uh, uh, all, all, all the forces that be in this country to know that there was going to be some consequences that if you kept moving in the manner in which you were moving. And uh, as our youth would have us to be rather audacious at the time, we took the position that if uh, there were going to be wailing in the black household, there would be some wailing in the white household or the oppressor's household, you know, that, and there had to be funerals on both sides, that, that you know, we, we, we could no longer continue to exist in the manner in which we was existing at that time. The people that I worked with that came out of prisons, out of prisons, they were highly politicized when they came out. They had studied inside of prison. They were in formations in prisons who sent them to us, uh, thought they would make good soldiers. And uh, it wasn't about uh, uh, taking a, a raw recruit and having to sit him down and politicize him. But I must say this, there were uneven development in Blah with his political education. Some brothers and sisters were more politicized than other brothers and sisters. And sometimes your politicalization affects the position you may take in terms of making a move or doing certain things and whatnot. So that, but there were uneven political development in Blah, you understand? But we were always conscious of this and we were always, even in, in the situations that we found ourselves in at that time, we studied underground. We didn't just, it wasn't just about guns and bombs and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, we had to study. From the, from the day of the Black Panther Party to the last blah person went to prison, I mean, we studied. You know, it wasn't just about uh, all arms struggle and no study. You know, there was medical cadre and personnel, and there were, uh, 
There were doctors, there were nurses, there were people who could, you know, uh, deal with trauma, injuries that could deriving out of that, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was developed. It wasn't developed to the, our fullest extent where we would like to have had it been, but we were able to save some comrades' lives that way, and brothers were able to keep on fighting, you know. I mean, everybody, uh, uh, a lot of people, there are those who didn't die because of, they received medical help. And, it, and, and if they died later on, uh, the powers to be were surprised that uh, there were other marks that would have taken them out maybe two years ago. So yeah, we, it, it, worked, it worked very well, you know, but that's in any underground, any um, movement, you, you gotta have your medical thing intact, in you know, or you should have. No, it wasn't just uh, about individual deal of arms. People in the Black Liberation Army worked on many levels, you know. There were people who worked on medical levels, there were people who worked on uh, transportation, there were people who worked on housing. The overall Black Liberation Movement, now, we came out of the Black Liberation Movement, and that movement supported us. We were as strong as our movement was. If the movement became weak through oppression from the powers that be, that means that blood's gonna be weak. You know, we were only as strong as the movement, and our victories was the movement's victories. Uh, those individuals who would house us and whatnot, they were movement people. Those people had nine to five jobs. They was doctors, nurses, and lawyers, or whoever they may have been. Uh, John Q, sister, my aunt, your grandmother. These were the people that was housing us and whatnot, and making us safe, and they looked out for us. And these were people from our community. After all, we didn't, you know, come from some other place. We came from the black community, you know, like, uh, and a lot of times when people ask us questions about blah, or the Black Panther Party, or a lot of time they ask questions, a lot of us came into the movement with the same hang-ups that, that somebody have on the avenue. The, the sister on the avenue, or the brother in the bar and whatnot, we came into the Black Panther Party with all those warts. The only thing that made us different was that we were willing to change. But uh, when we became politicized, then people started looking at us as if we came from somewhere else. The powers that be, they would try to drive a wedge between us and the black community, but we were the black community. You know, that they would say they would write things like we were outlaws and the black community disowned us, which is bullshit. How, how you gonna disown us? We were the black community, you know? And like uh, our support, because we didn't have the newspapers, we didn't control that. But we could go in any bar, any barbershop, a hair salon, and after an action happened the night before, and people would be random raving about what those ladies and men did the night before. You know, so I mean, you know, we, 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 we were well accepted in the black community. If we were not, we would not have been able to exist. We would have been turned in. Very few people in the Black Liberation Army, very few who were turned in by informants. We usually got captured in military action. Not that someone snitched on us uh, over there. We, we were protected well. And this was the wishes of the black community.
We we had working relationship with many organizations, with many organizations, RNA, close uh, uh, relationships with uh, uh, prison movement, uh, other revolutionary nationalist formations that was out there and whatnot. You know, I mean, like I say, we were, we was from the black community and. Any progressive people that we could work with, we worked with them. And we, uh, we, we, we was about coalition building and solidarity with uh, a lot of people, man. Uh, the Native American movement, the Chicano movement, you understand, the Young Lords, uh, all people of color and people are progressive people, period. Uh, we, we worked with them, you know, and, 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 and where we could do... Uh, uh, actions together, we did that, and uh, we some some dealt with different levels of actions, and some didn't. So you know, I mean, but like, oh yes, no question, we 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 believed on the United Front. Uh, expropriations uh, 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 were for the movement. It was not for individual gains or whatnot. Uh, uh, we. We, we made withdrawals uh, from the capitalist banks to further the revolution. We had to, uh, to run underground, it takes a great deal of money. I mean, you gotta have cars, you gotta have apartments, you gotta have housing, you're moving around, you, 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 you spend a great deal of money and whatnot, so it takes money to run a revolution. And so, like, uh, those, 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 those expropriations were not done for selfish gains. We weren't trying to buy a house or the main coat of the Cadillac. Uh, we, we had uh, practically taken a vow of poverty because most of us had nothing but what was on our backs and whatnot. And we wasn't trying to get rich doing that. A lot of money went for legal fees, uh, bailing people out, uh, making sure people's commissary was stashed. Stacked, you know, uh, brothers didn't have to suffer or won't for much if they were captured. A lot of our time was spent in terms of trying to liberate brothers who were captured. So, you know, it takes money to run any kind of struggle. I think that uh, we should keep in mind that, that Blah, uh, being a military wing of the liberation movement and the, the political apparatus that was above ground and supporting Blah, it was their place to deal with those types of uh, answers. But the Black Panther Party dealt with that early on. If you remember, uh, Bobby Nose went to Sacramento with guns. And that was because the law of California at that time allowed you to have guns. And you could have them openly. And you could have them in a car as long as a round wasn't in the chamber. In New York, at the same time, New York's laws was different. It had a Sullivan law, meaning you could get up to five years, I think, at that time, for having a concealed weapon. California, you could have your weapon out in the open and whatnot. And so the party, in its early days, coming out of California, you understand, they were able to deal with that from a legal point of view in terms of carrying arms. Uh, when the legislature, Ronald Reagan, being the governor at the time, wanted to take away with that law, that's when they marched on Sacramento. And you know, that's when the party got its major national and international notoriety from that episode, that uh, them trying not to 
to, 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 to prevent them from passing that law, they would take their arms away from them because at that time they needed them in California. Uh, we, we know that a lot of times when we are captured uh, uh, in prison, that uh, we have to deal with uh, the bourgeois legal system. And, but it's our job to expose that system, to expose that system for its shortcomings and its inaccuracies and, 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 and its injustices toward the people that they've captured and whatnot. In exposing the system in this country, any aspect of, its system, of the system that's not doing what it's supposed to do for its people or what it claims to do, that's educating the masses of people. Once the people become educated that the system is not working, this is a contradiction. And once they see the contradiction, they see a need to, to do some other things. You can't, you can't, uh, uh, so that's why these trials, that's why when you go to these courtrooms, that's why those brothers and sisters on trial, they're educating the masses about the contradiction within the, in the judicial system and about why they're receiving so much time as opposed to somebody else doing a more heinous crime and, 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 and not receiving that kind of time. It's the same, see, we take, uh, the, 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 the fight is not just on the battlefield in the streets, the fight is also in the judicial system. The fight is against all aspects of this, 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 this government's its laws and how oppressive they are and how unfair they are. So when we go off in the courtroom and don't allow the, the trial to proceed and we disrupt the trial and we're not having it and we're not coming out and whatnot, the masses see that. And the first the masses may say, there's some crazy motherfuckers there. But then on the other hand, they can see the contradictions. That's what we're talking about and whatnot. The same thing with Sunday out of college trial, the 21 and whatnot. The 21, you had individuals in the 21 trial who defended themselves. Fanny Shakur, she was one of her. She defended herself, and she did it eloquently, and she pointed out all the contradictions in that 157 count of indictments they brought against them. You understand? And, and a two-year trial, the most costly trial in New York State's history up until that time. And after two years of being incarcerated, most of them in Sunday other State locked up the whole time. He did not, he wasn't one of the ones that came out on bail. They acquitted them in 45 minutes. Two years. I mean, you know, like, uh, I mean, that's, I, it, something's fundamentally wrong with that thing, you know. Now, some people will say, well, the acquittal of, of, of Sunday out and the, and the 21, uh, that proves that the system works. That's bullshit. It don't prove the system works. First of all, who's going to give him his two years back? Loss of employment. Name smeared through the mud. They was accused of going to blow up uh, Mason's department store, botanical gardens, the subway system in New York City. Alienate them from the masses. They, they, they was ranting and raving. Yeah, you see, they was talking about they for the people. They were going to blow the people up on Easter Sunday. So these are the contradictions, man, you know, like uh, that they were able to expose and whatnot at that time. And, 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 and same thing with the BLA trials. All those trials were disruptive trials because who wasn't going to go to the penitentiary willingly? Well, we knew that a lot of times there were incidents there uh, where they threw down on us first in terms of these armed confrontations and whatnot. And we just wasn't having it. We were not going to have that, you know. 
and uh, uh, um, and, and like I said, if they had to be funeral, there'd be funerals on both sides. Some of the differences with uh, the Deacons for Defense, you see, my understanding of history around the Deacons for Defense, here's some brothers and sisters came out of Bogalusa, Louisiana because it was a very oppressive place. And it was also a place where the Civil Rights Movement had failed to go into certain parts of Louisiana. You see history of uh, the marching in Mississippi and Alabama. Louisiana, man, especially Bogalusa, was uh, off the charts. So those brothers and sisters down there had to take up arms to defend themselves. They were killing and lynching people, and it all didn't make the news. And then on the other hand, the Deacons for Defense was the ones who strung that perimeter around the civil rights marches. When we see these marches marching through Mississippi and Alabama, long lines of people, ask yourself, why did the Klan just run out of the woods and start shooting and killing up a bunch of people? Because them brothers was back in them woods and whatnot. They put that defense around uh, the civil rights movement. And I think it's very, very unfair to them to not have been recognized as such because the civil rights movement wanted to take the position that it's about nonviolence. They didn't want to talk about the people with the guns and whatnot and people who stood up like that. And that does a disservice to our overall movement. It does a disservice to black people. It does a disservice in terms of our history and whatnot. When we don't talk about that aspect of our history and whatnot, when we try to criminalize that aspect of our history and say they're just a bunch of thugs and whatnot, and then they're off the street and whatnot. Everybody, everybody wasn't being beaten and water hosed down and turning the other cheek. You know, we know that from Nat Turner and Harry Tubman. And if you do a little study, a little further study in your history and whatnot, we know that with John Brown and Harper's Ferry and the raid and whatnot. And if you go a little further in that history then, then you have to ask yourself why didn't Frederick Douglass, why wasn't they on that raid? Now, Harriet Tubman and the rest of them. Now, Harriet Tubman, that's my hero in that. I, I mean, I love this woman, man. But I mean, so don't, 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 don't take the position that, uh, that those brothers and sisters out there who died out there like that and, and who put their lives on the line, that uh, it didn't matter, that it was uh, just a futile attempt, uh, exercise and futility, that's nonsense, you know? I mean, like, uh, a lot of those brothers in the Deacons for Defense, they left Louisiana, a lot of them came into the North and Chicago and became taxi drivers and melted off into history and whatnot. But it's unfair to the generation that come along now that don't know anything about that history and whatnot. And, and, and to think that we were just always subservient and passive in that and, and just dying peacefully, you know, that, that, that's ridiculous, man. You know, if we're gonna tell the history of black people in this country, we need to tell all aspects of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We need to talk about all of that there and then let the chips fall where they may. You know, I mean, no other people that I know of, that I've read about, have ever suppressed that aspect of their history when it existed. You know, we so far to talk about the, the, how brave we fought in World War II and World War III, and, and, and like, but when it comes to, for black people, we ain't got no blood. We bleed all over the world, but we ain't, like Malcolm said, we ain't got no blood when it comes to us, you know. That's legitimate. We bled in Germany, Korea, Vietnam, you know, but like, uh, 
here, and, and, and we went to war in those places for much less than would have happened to us here. You know, I mean, for much, much less, you know. Happens all the time, I suppose, huh? Freedom to be safe. Freedom to be not be messed with. Freedom to, you know, pursue your life and your livelihood and 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 without restraints. Uh, uh, we're not talking about integration, yeah. You know, we're talking about just pure, simple freedom. You know, I mean to be left alone, to be safe in your home and whatnot, to be uh uh you have some intellectual proudness to pursue all that you can be. You know, that's freedom. You know, I mean, like, uh, uh, and why should we have to point to black children who become ex exceptional scholars of uh, going to space? Why do we, why, why, I mean, the restraints that they've had against them, they were able to make those achievements, but why should we have to have those kind of restraints? What about the rest of our population that wasn't able to reach those heights because they were suppressed, uh, exploited, uh, not given the chance, you know? That's freedom to me. When a question like that, it is what the Black Liberation Movement did and what Blah was able to, to the extent it was able to protect that movement for it, to allow it to do those things because you're talking about mass front work, working with the masses of people and setting programs in place and whatnot. Blah was not in a position to do that. Blah was in a position to protect its movement. That, 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 well, that was his goal to protect its people. So the movement was able to develop and go on, you know, and the movement, and, and, and you know, the Black Liberation Movement, the, the, the jury's not in on that yet. You know, Nob is jury in on blah. You know, I mean, so like, because there's still a manifestation of all that still taking place today and whatnot. That's why we have uh, uh, the San, uh, San, uh, San Francisco 8 trial going on. These people, hell, these people in their late 50s and in the early 70s. And they're being taken. So the ramifications of that period of time is still with us today and whatnot. And it also is manifesting, that period of time and that history is manifesting itself in the hip hop world today. You know, that's why you have uh, a lot of people uh, in the hip hop movement becoming consciousness. You know, as, as opposed to say five or six years ago. There seemed to be, have been a, a, a transformative uh, uh, development within within the hip hop consciousness, you know. I mean, you they're saying things now uh, that they weren't saying ten years ago. Hell, I, 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 Alicia Keys recently made a comment about they, they needed another Black Panther party. Uh, uh, it wasn't. These things were not taking place in the last. 10, 15 years, they are doing research on that period and that history and whatnot. Unlike our times from the 60s, struggle was in all of our culture, all aspects of our culture. You had James Brown say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. You had, uh, you had the temptations. Uh, you had uh, uh, people doing uh, 
uh, anti-drug songs during that period of time. You had uh, uh, Last Poet talking about revolution and whatnot. Nikki Giovanni and her poetry. Uh, Lil' sister uh, uh, Valerie um, uh, was uh, Valerie Johnson. Uh, 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 these people were making poetry during that period in time, you know, uh, addressing uh, the condition within the black community, you know. And so uh, it was easy to organize then because oppression was so blatant and so in your face. And, 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 and why it is still blatant in some quarters in our community, uh, uh, they have uh, um, camouflaged it. So people have a tendency to think that uh, it's not happening to them. It's like Malcolm did the analogy about uh, you go to the dentist and he give you some Novocaine and you're sitting there bleeding, blood running down your jaw. Don't even know you're in pain. So a lot of us, you know, we don't, we don't, we say you, some people take the position that was the civil rights, but we ain't, we not with that. We don't, that ain't happening to us now until uh, he walk out in the street and have his face get blown off by the police department. Uh, he get beaten to the cement out there. He find himself railroaded to one of the state penitentiaries with a life sentence for a crime he didn't commit. Um, he, he go before the, a, a jury and it's all white jury and they look at him like he's crazy. And if he didn't commit the crime, he just ought to have committed. You know, so I mean, you know, like, uh, I think oppression, and sometimes uh, oppression, oppression breeds a lot of resistance, you know. People become oppressed, you know, people take it so long, and that's all people. That's just humankind, I think. The, the myth is, is that we were outlaws, that we were divorced from the black community, that uh, no one knew us in the black community, that we had no support in the black community. That was the myth. Uh, we would not have been able to exist without the black community. We sought refuge in the black community. The black community housed us, made us safe, nursed us back to health, and kept us moving. And when we ran out of arms and couldn't get our own arms, they supplied us with arms. That was the black community. The Black Liberation Army comes from the black community. Make no mistake about that. That 13-year-old, he's just passed on the street out of that little girl skipping rope or doing double dutch down the block. Tomorrow morning, she may be a soldier in the Black Liberation Army or the next four or five years. Depends on how her life goes and how this government treats her, you know? So those are some of the myths and whatnot, you know? Uh, 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 the, uh, the Black Liberation Army have did wonders in uh, helping black youth Black people with their own self-esteem. Because like I say, you know, like uh, when you see that you're being beaten into the semen, uh, a lot of uh, funerals of your people and nobody else is paying for this shit, that's like a hopeless situation. That, that, uh, that's demoralizing. I mean, like, uh, no one, no one should have to live like that. And you shouldn't want to bring your children up in a society like that. Imagine what that's doing to a six, seven-year-old, seeing someone drug down the stairs, four or five flights of stairs and whatnot, beaten to death, and then 
there's no justice, there's nothing, no, nothing happens behind that. That person is being scarred. That is psychological violence against the youth, you know. So, you know, yeah, we, we, we think that uh, even in our loss and those who died and whatnot, we think that uh, 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 it was the right thing to do at that period in time. Given the information that we had at that period in time, if we had no other information that there, then we would do it all over again tomorrow in a heartbeat, the same way. Because we only can make decisions on what we have and what we know. Fear. Fear makes people act strangely. And we have to understand fear. We can't hold that against the people. It was fear. It was fear from the counterintelligence program. It was fear how they was moving on us and how they came down on the black community, certain elements in the black People had their doors kicked in, were not even affiliated with the Black Liberation Army. And their search for us, it was fear. And so we understand what fear can do. If the movement, if the liberation movement, the black liberation movement as a whole had been stronger, we would have been able to weather that storm there. But I mean, the people, the people, man, you know, like, uh, we didn't just deal with the local police department, the counterintelligence program, we was dealing with the Central Intelligence Agency, Army Security, uh, the, the, uh, Naval Security. All of these people spied on the Black Liberation Movement in this country, in the BLA. We got tons and tons and tons of files that the counterintelligence program kept on individuals and whatnot. Now, mind you, all this paperwork that they kept on, and a lot of us, man, like I say, we weren't even 25 years old at that time. And, and so that kind of repression coming down on the black community made people fearful, you know? But again, I say, if the black liberation movement was stronger, we would be only as strong as our movement. If the civil rights movement if other elements in the black community had supported us, it wouldn't have been that way. It would not have turned out that way. We, from the people, we can only do what the people do. We, we don't have the power to just liberate our people, because if we could, we would have, and we would have did it much before all those deaths took place. Um, I suppose that an apology would be in order for the young people, because we didn't accomplish that goal, because like, our intentions were to make it a much better place for those who was going to come after us, and we would have hoped that somebody like you wouldn't have to be here on a Friday night sitting up in uh, Columbia University making a recording. You could be out with your booth somewhere, chilling out, dancing on the floor, instead of trying to de have to deal with struggle. But we didn't. We we didn't, we didn't win. We didn't. We we didn't. You know. But. The jury's still out. The struggle still continues. Our elected officials, the black officials, and the black so-called leaders, they don't have enough backbone to speak out on those people and whatnot. Obama, they talking about president. I can't see voting for anybody if he ain't talking about freeing some political prisoners. Why shouldn't that, I mean, why aren't people, why aren't people confronting people about that? Oh, Hillary Clinton for that matter. Bill Clinton cut loose a few people when he left office and whatnot. Some people for, uh, uh, but he didn't cut loose any black political prisoners, and he didn't free Lily Peltier. 
You know, I mean, I'm not saying that those people that he did give pardons to didn't deserve it, because they most certainly did. But uh, it's an uneven development, you know? And, and I think that, I think that um, if the elected officials don't start speaking about political prisons in the black community, put pressure on them to speak about these people and whatnot. You talk about Nelson Mandela, we got Nelson Mandela, we got Sundala Coley, we got Herman Bell, we got Jaleel Montaboom, we got all, we got Bashi Hamid, we got all these political prisoners across the country, man. Uh, 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 we got Yogi Pinnell, who's sitting up in Florence. You got Dr. Matula Shakur. Those are our Nelson Mandela and whatnot, but it's safe to worship people from afar because they don't have the same ramifications and whatnot. When Nelson Mandela came to New York, we had to fight to even get to tell him about our political prisoners in this country. Nobody addresses that. Nobody, nobody talks about the American political prisoners and whatnot. And if they do, it's not publicized. And they're not saying it on a public forum where it can be heard. You understand? In the meantime, we got people who've been locked up 35 and 40 years. And you're talking about political prisoners. When you talk about political prisoners, you must always talk about our political exile because we want them home too without charges. There's no reason why Asada Shakur should need to be in Cuba and couldn't come to her mother's funeral or her daughter's graduation or the birth of her grandchildren. There's no need. We need to be crying out for those. All of our political prisoners need to be returned to the United States if they so desire. Senator Whale, he'd been, he'd been out of the country almost 40 years. He'd been in exile longer than a lot of us have been alive. That's, that's, that's a long time, man. You know, that's outrageous. Pete O'Neill, Coach Pete said he don't have a desire to come back no more, him and Shaw. And not just them, you got D.C. languishing down in the south of France. And the other brothers who were in France and in Egypt and, and elsewhere in, the, in, in North Africa, it's an exile. We need, every time political prisoners is mentioned, our political exiles must be mentioned. There needs to be a campaign for those people to return to this country and whatnot. Because they, a lot of them left here on trumped up charges, man, and that was fabricated by the government. And as a result of our movement benefiting from it, our people. Taking the pre, taking uh, taking that brunt force off of John Q. Citizen on the street in Bed-Stuy Harlem and saying that we'll deal with this ourselves. That took some of the pressure at the time off the black community. And that's what we wanted to do, you know. And then we found out that when we stepped out there and whatnot, they weren't, they weren't all that bad and whatnot. It's a question of who lays down the most firepower. That's who wins the day. They ain't all that, they ain't all that invincible. You understand? They're cowards, really. Because any time that you get up in the morning, man, and kiss your missus goodbye, and strap on that gun, and come into the black community and brutalize our people and whatnot, you're a coward. You're a coward. This, is, this community, our community, is the most defenseless community on the face of the earth, with the exception of the prison population. We have nothing to defend ourselves, you know? So they murder, kill, rape, jail us and do what they want to do with impunity. 
So there was a period in time we can always go back to and say that wasn't happening like that. And that day will come again if the conditions don't change. Because condition breeds resistance. Always have and always will. Good, good job. I just think that uh, in closing, I would just say uh, free all our political prisoners and bring our exiles home. Yeah, so I, I just want, I think this is a, a super key, like, talking point, um, just, like, for the group in general. Um, and so I, I kind of wonder um, what folks' opinions are um, on, like, the need, obviously not only for, like, militant organizing, but the need to be, like, pulling in, um, like, local community groups and gangs and organizations, right, that are already doing that, trained in that, right, and have... The, the capacity, both that and the firepower to do it, right? Um, and so I wonder what folks' opinions are um, or thoughts are on, like, the necessity of, of like, the street soldiers also being, like, integral, an integral part of um, even what, like, we're doing uh, in OC, right? And, I mean, because we, we see, like, we've already, I think, seen ways where we've, like, interacted with each other in, um, in other ways where, um, like, like folks from the community notice like what we're doing as well. Um, and, and like even, even a lot of the homies of the tracks um, like are affiliated in that way. Um, and like their folks and they pull through and kick it with them frequently and see us too. So um, I'm just wondering what folks think about that. And like how that example he just gave of like how the Slauson street gangs, like essentially like they already had a whole military wing to the black Panther party, um, a whole underground wing that was like, able to protect um, the above ground work. And I think he'll talk about it, I think a little in a second or like later um, of, about how the, the militant groups um, in, in the South, um, like um, I, think, I, I, think, I think he said Robert, Robert Williams, he wrote um, Negroes with Guns um, and how they like the, like, hey, you never hear about it, but like the entire time the civil rights movement was going on, like there's a reason the KKK was like scared to come around. Um, and it, it wasn't because of the civil rights movement. Um, and so I'm, yeah, I, I guess like, yeah, I just wanted to like stop, um, the video to see, uh, if folks had any ideas or talking points around like these topics. Um, so I kind of want to, um, uh, mention something hopping off when he, he terms, he uses the term lumpen. When he when he described, I don't know if he already used it or he might be uh, using because uh, I remember catching it the first time I listened to it. But basically, uh, he was characterizing a lot of the um, uh, people that they would get that would have uh, either been through uh, the the prison system and come out. I think that was the example he used. I forget the uh, gentleman's name, but um, he was using his example. They came out of prison and already had the the Salsa Street Gang. Uh, if, if that's if I if I said the name correctly, mm -hmm. I, yeah. So, but he but he called them lumpen, and I don't know his his definition of it, but generally within like Marxist theory, the lumpen is short for lumpen pro proletariat, and it's sort of a um, pejorative, like kind of a um, in my view a, a bit uh, insulting because it, the the characterization you're making is that the lumpen, the lumpen proletariat don't have class consciousness. They're not, they're not politically conscious. 
and that they're uh, usually uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, this idea of uneducated and very like exposed to like reactionary tendencies to either fall this way or that way. Um, and I, I don't, I don't like that characterization. Maybe within the uh, Black Panther, Black Liberation Army framework, they use that word differently. But classically, it's it's used in that way to kind of say that these people don't have class consciousness and they're. But at the same time, they are actually using them for military action and and and, and defense. So uh, I, I don't want to get too hung up on that, but I. I I think it's important when 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 terming sort of or placing people within a, a movement or placing people within uh, uh, any type of organization that kind of characterization of them and the role that they play, you know, so I, I, I don't know if somebody can speak on that and more knowledgeable uh, about that. Yeah. Okay, so Fanon and, and BLA and Panthers tend to view Lumpen as having a revolutionary consciousness. Okay, 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 okay. True. Well, thank you for 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 uh, clarifying that. Um, cool. I guess that comes out like my wasn't using the peasantry and all of that as well because they did have elements. But yeah, um, thank you for clarifying. Uh, I guess I want to add to not add to whatever what was said, but our thoughts on that. Um, I, I think of it as it just these things are are happening um, organically uh, already, you know, like as more people come in, let's just say like any of us, right, we're all coming together, but we also have like um, our own crews, our own homies that we grew up with that have our backs, right? So like if anything happened to one of us, I'm sure at least one of us has one person, I hope, right? If not, you can call me, I'll be there. But we have one person that'll pull up on us. So like that, like having that street security and whatnot already is gonna be happening like organically as the pod. I don't know, I don't like that language, that pod, like, hey, but, but as the pod grows, right? We all have our own other pods that will pull up for us. And that happens organically, like having that like street level security. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's just how I look at it. Yeah, does do you, do you do you kind of feel it as well? You know, like how like we kind of all come together and then we already have our own little things and, you know, like it'll it's already happening organically, right? Like, like how you said, we pull up on the tracks and people are at the tracks and, you know. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think when, uh, when like you're doing it, if, if you're in the field and you're doing work alongside and with um, folks who are in that community um, and actually like working alongside them to meet needs, like I, I do think it happens organically, right? And, and I think that also, like you're saying, um, you pull in like your different like units and pods or whatever that, that you've rocked with. Um, and so not only does like the immediate circle like automatically grow larger, um, but like as you continue to like just be present in the community, uh, like working to address different needs and like partnering uh, and working alongside different folks like throughout the city or throughout um, one community or one neighborhood, uh, I think you start to build in that way. Um, and so so I think there's like like the, the, there's two things to it. Like I think the building um, and like the 
solidarity between folks is like super necessary. Um, and then like the, but also like the, the strategic like conversations I think between um, certain survival programs and uh, more underground networks um, that have the capacity of actual physical um, uh, like firepower and defense um, that, that mixed with like political education um, of like the whole the whole collective right all like all those things like working together are important and I think yeah it was just it really it was really interesting to me for to hear him like break down all the different survival programs that were active and how both in the south and throughout the major cities the black liberation army um, and he kind of uses that term uh, very broadly like basically anyone who took up arms in defense of black communities was the black liberation army to him um, and so like that was fascinating. The fact that no matter where you saw like black struggle, you saw black folks taking up arms and defending that underground. And like, that is like, and he talks about how that was like robbed from our history. Like we, we don't talk about, in a, in a sense, we don't talk about ourselves as always having resisted as we talk, right? It's usually the fact that, yeah, the, oh yeah, or, or being collective, right? The, the capitalism like teaches us then to, to become individuals. Um, and then also like it strips us of um, any any sort of resistance, right? Cause we're taught that like, we wanna be more like John Lewis than, than to be actually like a, a Robert Williams. Right, and like even Kwame Ture is like too militant. Right? Way too militant. Yeah, like, in yeah. And, like within that normative yeah. frame, like I don't remember who said that at, who, who was that at John Lewis's funeral? was like oh bill clinton that's who it was yeah anyway yeah, well, uh, yeah. he was like if we could have had it just this way yeah. more of L like mlk yeah more like john lewis yeah, yeah. or yeah more like john lewis. yeah I, yeah i think that's an interesting thing and and also like uh sort of this um grounding of of this perspective in like autonomy that like each of these communities by themselves is is doing this like internally organizing mobilizing folks yeah, I, I guess this one's just a comment because um, I, I looked it up to, to see how uh, the uh, uh, Panthers use Le Pen and they, as, um, they, they used it very differently. They saw it as central to sort of the struggle of just to read off. Um, it's co-founders, Bobby Seale and Hugh Pinu, two co-founders mm -hmm. of the Black Party, viewed the African-American Lumpen proletariat as a potential organized threat if the party did not mobilize them. Seal included the brother who's pimping, the brother who's hustling, the unemployed, the downtrodden, the brother who's robbing banks, who's not politically conscious in his definition of lumpetarian. Newton called them street brothers, alienated from the system of oppression in the US and sought to recruit them to the party. Their strategy was a controversial one. And uh, people said, uh, certain things it it, it, it kind of like makes sort of the gang dynamics uh, a little bit and, and and the culture but they basically viewed it as a very important in a sense to mo mo mobilize the uh, uh, the the people that are suffering the most uh under under capitalism that are forced to do the things that they that they're doing so yeah and so i think this i think this ties in with the mutual aid right like we go into these neighborhoods that like we're that we're a part of right? And we're doing the mutual aid and we're providing. And then that alone grows it, right? Because like we're providing for families that like are in neighborhoods that like are in gang, gang neighborhoods, right? And like with that comes time and we build bonds 
And if anything were to pop, right, we're feeding these neighborhoods, like who's going to like, right, they have our backs. And that, that like, the, those peace treaties that you were talking about come from, I believe, that mutual aid, right? Because it just, it just happens organically again. Um, and like, because we're coming from different parts of Orange County, like whoever I know and wherever neighborhoods I'm going and helping out. And then like, let's just say like, it hasn't like, you know, so then that already builds that connection. And I think it just, again, happens naturally and, you know. Uh, thank you, Stack Next. Um, I was going to say that I like something I, I see often is that like even game bangers here, <clears throat> like where I live at, um, a lot of them kind of have a peace treaty. The space that I operate out of, um, the the people that game bang, they get together and feed houseless folks three days a week. Um, and the, these are also people that have had like historic um, historic beef with each other. I think um, those, uh, I think game like, and the reason why they've been able to keep it going so long and, and we haven't had problems this far and it's been years is because the media doesn't know about it. Um, a lot of people don't know that they're doing it. So like no instigation no instigating can be brought upon them. Police are not allowed in our space because police, I've seen like police start a war and then drive away or start a war and then arrest folks um, because they're instigating or saying this or pulling over another member of this. And I've seen the happen countless, countless times. So something that we've been doing is that like keeping it low key that we have people from rival gangs throughout you know, throughout history, um, working together, and and it's been going beautifully. And they're also they also um, encourage folks um, in the community to be very politically involved. Um, we lean on them a lot as um, as movement builders, actually. Um, sorry, I was just saying that, or from my perspective, that the the aspect of like we didn't get infiltrated because you don't, you didn't pick the BLA, the BLA picked you, um, where it's like, it's like e even different than a vetting process. Like, oh, we wanna participate in your organization. Like, all right, let's find them out. Like, it's even a step further where it's like, you don't even, like, we draft you. And so it's not like, we're not about to draft an op, I mean, I think it's so possible that it could be infiltrated, but like, I just thought that that part was crucial. The, the difference between people picking the organization and the organization knowing who they want and why. I thought it was interesting how you brought up, oh, sorry, go. Were you still speaking? Oh no, my bad. Oh, okay. Yeah, like he brought up something about Algeria and how they had like cells and like cadres. Um, and I was just thinking, it reminded me of like the film, The Battle of Algiers, which um, like it, it's almost like, it's not documentary, but it's like almost documentary-like um, showing the struggle of like 
Algerians against French colonialism. And yeah, I wasn't sure like what the 24 hour policy was, but I knew that like the Black Panthers and a lot of like revolutionary groups during that time would like watch that the Battle of Algiers as like mandatory like screening. Like I would say the like the generations after, like because he's apologizing because they like lost the battle, uh, but again I think like like he was saying like if uh, certain parts of the black community had not sold out uh, and sold them out, um, he like he was saying then this wouldn't be the case, um, and then I think that subsequent generations have also chosen to sell out. Um, and like completely abandon our politi- like our our elders who are currently captured, um, yeah. yeah. Like 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 again. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. So I, I like it made me like it actually like made me hurt and like sad when he was like apologizing to like like current folks who who are within the movement or existing because like they lost their battle. But I think that other folks failed them and are continuing to. I, I, I just want to add two points from like earlier that I think were super important um, that if anyone wants to pick up and talk about, but like, I can't speak on it for too long. Um, just the, the idea that like the, the blah, or the black liberation army um, like knew that their part of their goal and their role as like an underground militant group was to make sure that like whiteness and white terror was like afraid to enact terror on black communities um, and afraid to be in and around black communities. Um, and so I think like that, that was super important because uh, he, he highlighted that like a couple of times that like if, if we felt hurt and pain, um, then like they they will too. Like we cannot go on like this. And I, and I think it's just interesting in the context of our, our month of transformative justice because we talked about reality. And like he talked about like the reality is like we would not have survived if we allowed, allowed ourselves to like to be like ter- terrorized in the way that we were being. Um, and, and they had to meet that with violence so that that whiteness was afraid to enact its terror on, on black communities, right? And, and I think like that was super key. And that's something that's like completely, uh, not completely, but like very much so lost within a lot of movement spaces. Um, like almost, yeah, almost completely said. Um, and, and yeah, so I thought that was a super key point. Um, and then the other one, was on in terms of like security culture the idea that like like not having just open fucking invitations right like he said the like black liberation army chose you um and my homie from sacramento hopefully will be um be like dude the the, whatever podcast episode we do for this hopefully he'll be on that with us and like his his dad uh was an ex-marine who the black liberation army chose like came to him and like fucking pulled up to him and was like we need you um and like so like that's where like his bloodline has uh or like that's where he has that's where he learned was like from his father um and so i think that was a very important point was that like they were they never got infiltrated because like they they all of their folks work um but like you didn't get called into the bla and like unless they called you in like you didn't just pull up and knock on their door so either of those two points I think would be super cool to talk about. But if not, then like obviously just keep going. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, does anyone have anything I think, they want to say? I think uh, before 
checked out she did have that at that point of like that's like how they didn't get even traded because like it was almost like it's chosen right it's like almost like the the lead of the lead if you would say right like um like special force type shit um and yeah that's very important you get picked you get chosen yeah and i think that's this kind of like opens the door for an interesting conversation into like uh security culture in our space and like how we think about this stuff um like the way in which um like a, a spectrum of political education specifically leaning more towards like liberalism can be like a very dangerous thing to have in that organization because those people are not connected to the seriousness of what that is right that at, at a certain point um this is like important in having like just our own conversation about understanding like what is security in, in, in our spaces? Like, can we be around people who have this, this sort of position, this, this belief, this, this politically educated position that's, that's further towards liberalism, even in association with this space? Because we understand the violence that will be caused um, as like a, um, oh, sorry. Yeah, I see what you said right there. They don't understand the consequences of their actions. Exactly. It's a game to folks, right? Yeah, and like, and exactly. what the big lesson from like our elders who are incarcerated, right, is that this isn't a fucking game. Like this is life and this is death. And like, uh, I, I guess maybe just even tapping into that conversation we're having on Monday, like what is grace in like that space? Like when you think about it like that, like how much grace can, can be given um, uh, the homie in the, the video saying, and I completely just blanked on his name right now, uh, like revolutions take money. This shit's expensive. Like feeding people is is like very resource intensive. Sheltering people, you know, providing health care for all this. This is like really, this is what costs a lot of money. And we're going to have to like figure out how do we have like an income stream to deal with that, right? We know we need money to deal with this stuff. But at the same time, like, like how much danger is involved on the other side. I mean, we um, let them in as far as we take their money and then give them a postcard like, hey, you did a good job type shit, right? That's as far <laughs> as it goes. There you go. <laughs> so, and I just want to quickly read what uh, Fima said here because um, I love Fanon and this is a wonderful quote. Uh, was uh, Just was reminded of Fanon quote about what was said before each generation must out of relative obscurity discover its mission fulfill it or betray it we must rid ourselves of the habit of minimizing the action of our fathers they fought as well as they could and if the echoes of the struggle have not resounded in the until or, or in the oh, it was abbreviation for international <laughs> arena thank you we must realize that the reason for the silence lies less in their lack of heroism than in the fundamentally different international situation of our time um one thing i wanted to add if no one else is going to uh it's not from this piece and it's not from the jaleel montakim one either um oh sorry um but it's from the Millennials Are Killing Capitalism podcast. And they, like, just a couple months ago did, or weeks, I don't even know, uh, did an interview. Um, I forget with who. I forget their name. Um, and, like, that's the failure, again, of, like, us not knowing our elders and our political prisoners. Um, but they did an interview with him. Uh, and his final line, they asked him, like, what would you say to, like, the current folks within the, the movement uh, for Black liberation? And... And he kind of had a pretty simple answer, um, just that 
like we need to be like there or he said he was talking about why it's like not working right now um and, and he discussed the way in which like we don't have community um and like there's nothing within our communities um for the most part right that like people know that there is something outside of the police or like the state that can like meet their needs uh and like people don't have that to turn to and like he was saying like that that was the success of like blah the black liberation army and uh the black panther party was like the fact that they had the ability to um or the, and the capacity to put on so many different survival programs for communities and the communities know that they had those and they know that they had the protection um and it's not kind of been talking about it and like it's there's like there's like so many reasons like why obviously right um like obviously capitalism makes it very intentional it's where we, we don't we can't build communities um both within our interpersonal lives and in like on a communal level um but like that i think that is like a, a note to take forward um is just like not only do we need to be doing it but like the folks who are from and within these communities, right? Especially like black and indigenous folks, folks who've been, and, and folks who've been affected by incarceration, like need to know that they have these support systems, that they have access to uh, people and resources um, that are willing to uplift them and their families and whatnot, right? And actually build community. And I think that like, there's so many quote unquote organizers and quote unquote activists and quote unquote folks who are like working for nonprofits or whatever, uh, but like how much, like how, how are we actually building like, like straight up communities, right? Because like they were able to do that back then because like you knew everybody within where you lived. You knew everybody at your local school. You knew everybody at your local church. Like I feel like that is like we're so much further from that. One of the anecdotes was like that he used was like we knew when the lady down the street couldn't feed her children and like we were there to help and like we don't even know the lady down the street. Yeah, so like just having that that access, right, um, to the community and the community having that access to you as a as a collective, I think is was something that like we're like, yeah, that's like fucking that's an important point. Yeah. Also just to speak on I've I've mentioned this sort of before, especially now in the time where sort of you know, even the barriers between home and work are broken. You know, you're now there's not working from home. There's not all of this. The capitalist mode of production and 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 labor is like more and more invading your life at higher levels. You had and and for the same stagnating wages. You know, as as always and. So it's just making you more and more and more isolated and, 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 and atomized. But, you know, at the same time, you do have, you know, digital spaces that can be utilized, but like we need to build that consciousness within people also make them realize that there are all alternatives. There are different ways of, of doing that, doing something like, like we are now, which is why it's really powerful that we're having such a space such as this, you know, because um, it's actively that is an act of resistance you're fighting against sort of the invasion of, of these things but yeah and like yeah. thinking about mobilizing yeah. mobilizing or excuse me about organizing is like literally just like getting to know people like knowing your community knowing the people that are around you and how how much power comes uh to to resistance when you just like know each other when you just have a connection have a relationship with people and like how much more willing you are 
to, I mean, to like sacrifice, but to like work together with someone, the more you know them. I think we see that every day, like as we get to know each other better, it's our, the way we work together is, is much more efficient. We're able to get stuff out earlier. Like we see this with distro, the more comfortable people are with, with putting everything together. We're starting to see things um, happen in more productive and efficient ways. And like even getting to know the, the, the communities that we work with, right? Like going out, like whenever we go down to the tracks, right? Building these connections and these relationships so folks know that like we give a shit about them. That in and of itself is, is perhaps the most powerful thing that's happening. It's like the, the capitalist state is always about isolating, atomizing you, making you easier to, as like a domino to just kind of knock over. Um, and how much more difficult that process becomes when you just talk with people and communicate and build relationships. And like, I, that's just something I, just to like echo what I was talking about. It's like what's so important about this space, but also like the other spaces that we've been, you know, building together to, to kind of create this. And yeah, so we have, we have no roots, right? So I want to hop back up the chat really fast because I didn't see all this stuff. So, so said, <clears throat> I also think that people can't really afford to stay in their houses anymore. They have to move because mm -hmm. of lack of stable jobs, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and and added alienation and American variant of capitalism is especially isolating. Yeah, the community yeah. is hard to build when you move so much. I mean, yeah, when you when you see like, and that's a big part of every economic crisis that comes along. Yeah, yo, yeah, uh, I wake up, the first I think about is you, and how you gon' fit in my day, I had no clue, so I foster your love, and the time we spent together of noxious and drugged, I think on whether we meet the measure, but I'm stuck inside my thoughts, dad and I'ma care forever, I know it's possible, Relations will never sever. It's up to me to compromise for you. It's not a question. Your entity went through my eyes, but my hands ain't held your lessons. I'm just a foolish guy, being useless with my blessings. So I use you as my guide and discern all my previous methods. A ti me entrego entero, de enero a diciembre Quiero ser sincero, sin miedo de lo que dirán Yeah, to be your lover and a healthy man Not crumble under pressures of this life's demand Speak in the language that both of us can understand Stay in your supper plans, it's something about that subtle glance Yes, I'm willing, unconditional, I'm still in Don't wanna wait until when it's too late to say what I'm willing Yeah. 
Your touch leaves me at a loss of breath Conversations, they lasted from one day to the next That when you're close, my heart I can't contain in my chest Truly exceptional beauty, uh, and your lovely caresses Medicine for my soul, and all of my stress You making me better, you my Asada, you my Afidi My Angela Davis, my queen, my Nefertiti My rock when I'm feeling weak, you're what I see when I dream Cause when we're together, there's nothing that comes between us When we're together, there's nothing that comes between Nah, yeah, it's that motherfucking labor of love